Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again is Evan Van Ness. How's it going, Evan? Good. We, we're, we're back. We uh, had a little, little respite there, but we are back and recording live from it's, a studio. It's been a really crazy two weeks, honestly. Like... Um, the amount of things that have happened in this last time period, like the speed at which things have changed has dramatically increased. Um, it The normal stock market makes Ethereum look stable at the time. Um, <laughs> and that probably puts it in, in stark relief for most people as they watch you know the market go down 10% every day. Right. And it and seems like a disaster. But for crypto, that's just, you know, Tuesday it actually prepared me quite well um one of the main reasons i got into crypto early on was because i watched the financial crisis and um basically got exposed to like these kinds of boom and bust cycles um and i wanted some kind of economic experimentation because it seemed like we never learned the appropriate lessons from the last financial crisis and um I I get a sick kind of joy watching the narrative of like the entire Bitcoin community just get like radically disproven. <laughs> the idea of a store of value is that you would have an asset that is counter cyclical to the boom and bust cycles of uh, risk assets like the stock market, but that's only really happened like once right and there hasn't been a big test in the last 10 years um that would demonstrate this to be obviously false Uh, except we got it in the last two weeks so even if i wish crypto was like actually a uh a like counter cyclical asset as a direct result of the uh, of financial crises it behaves like a risk asset and bitcoin got wrecked not more than usual but <laughs> it went down when everyone expected it to go up yeah i i mean people that thought that crypto was like a a you know was going to be a safe haven asset was like sort of crazy for me um like, I think maybe it could be in, like, the midterm. Like, you never know. But, like, the idea that, like, you know, markets crashing was going to be good for crypto is, like, I don't know. I, I mean, those are, like, the Bitcoin pumpers that you can't take seriously on Twitter, you know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Who actually believes that? I mean, I mean hopefully, it was, hopefully you, it was dear their... listener, do not. <laughs> I think it was their raison d'etre, like the whole idea of having a, quote, store of value in, like, there's only 21 million until the network can't pay for its own security. Um, That works, like, up until a certain point, but, like, that's not how it worked. Like, you didn't really have to look very far into history to realize that there's only been one example in which a financial crisis has led to an increase in the price of bitcoin and that was during the cyprus bail-in uh when people realized that they could they could use bitcoin to evade a haircut um, off of their assets but like that regulators have caught on that won't work twice it's not going to work that way um yeah i 
we'll see. I do think they'll actually change their narrative or do you think they'll just double down and be like, yes, but a 10% drop in a week wasn't real. It wasn't a real market crash. Like, so the market has yet to be tested type argument. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the impressive thing about Bitcoin pumpers is that they've always been able to come up with some new narrative, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the doomsday cults where, you know, it's like, the apocalypse is happening on July the 4th, 1985. And then, you know, they just keep managing to push it on. And like the fact that the apocalypse happened is, you know, proof that like this was actually all true. Um, and like, you know, <laughs> obviously there's some studies of these doomsday cults and usually like, you know, when there are things like that, like the, uh, the devoted, like a few of them fall out. Like they actually believe the narrative, but most of them just stay in because have to avoid the cognitive dissonance of believing something that was so crazy and not being able to tell yourself that you believe something crazy so right and uh -oh. some of them have to double down it's like this is a test of their faith either they yeah. hodl or they die <laughs> yeah yeah um, i mean the sad thing is most of those bitcoin people on twitter are probably cashing out on you but hey um. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so tell me about um, your speaking of doomsday cults. Um, <laughs> uh, ETH CC. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, that's why you were speaking. Why no, you said no, the I was phrase, actually, not, not I, I wanted to bring up the fact that uh, if you did go to FCC, one of the attendees uh, went on Twitter and said he posit he tested positive for coronavirus. So, um, yeah. And he was at Denver and East Denver and East London, too. Right. Um, it has a two week you know, incubation period. So if he tested positive recently, then you don't necessarily have yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, he's probably clean in Denver. Denver. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I know lots of people that, you know, well, I mean, obviously it's, a, it's an event, right? So even if you didn't talk to him and I, I like i think maybe we like fist bumped which by the way at every person that like stick, sticks their hand out at me i stick my fist out and i say corona handshake and then i stick my elbow out for the elbow bump and i say corona hug uh, and it's pretty amusing how many how often people laugh but um it is you know people should not be shaking hands like i'm i'm actually like the least paranoid about all this stuff as 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 you said like i participated in the doomsday cult of going to london and paris um and yeah i don't know i mean it is what it is right um we'll we'll find out i i've definitely washed my hands a lot more than i normally do <laughs> over the past you know week or so i guess two weeks i guess it was um like gnosis tweeted that he was at a happy hour that they threw um which i was at so i don't think i talked to him there but um you know yeah, it's been seven days. I still feel okay. I think the the average incubation is something supposed to be like five. Um, so it's something like two to 14 days. So, you know, it's over a week ago now, and I still feel fine. But uh, I don't know. Only one way to find out. Just let the time keep passing. Yeah, it's, uh, it again, it's been a really, like, weird kind of, past two weeks um especially with like the severity and the spread of this it sucks that it happened like right in the middle of our community but um it kind of just shows you that for the time being large in-person events might take a hit in the near term uh but yeah it's i mean honestly i don't think any ha events are going to happen in the next three months yeah, and whether or not they're actually able to contain uh, further spread, it could even be up to 18 months. Um, but we will see. Hopefully it doesn't continue to progress um, any further, but right now it's actively spreading in Europe and the United States with incidents growing exponentially. Um, 
But on the plus side, in China, South Korea, and Singapore, they actually have uh, stopped increasing exponentially, which is good. Um, which means that if the measures that they've taken worked, it'll start like decreasing. But that's not the purpose of this show. The purpose of the show is actually to talk a little bit about uh, Paris as well, FCC. I don't know. If you look at crypto Twitter, it does seem like the whole point of crypto Twitter is to talk about Corona. <laughs> uh, Twitter, <laughs> I saw like a really funny tweet recently that says like 2015 netflix and chill 2020 twitter and panic <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, so, yeah there you go um yeah it it's nice to be able to tune out sometimes um i've been pretty disconnected during this period but um luckily i can rely on you to fill me in so what's what's new with uh Anything from FCC that you think was new, like updates uh, from this week? What do you uh, What do you want to highlight from this past time period? Yeah, good question. Um, well, so ECC was a, a great conference as always. Um, you know, the the main amphitheater was was massive, like a thousand person, and it was kind of disconnected from the rest of the event. Um, so, uh, like a lot of, if you were, had the, the misfortune of being on the main stage, like no matter how many people you got in there, even like a few hundred, it looked pretty empty. Um, but like in the rest of the venue, like all the, the rooms were, were pretty filled. Um, there's a lot of, you know, ETH2 working groups as well, like roll up people and, and, and stateless Ethereum talking, um, before that, there was ETH London, which was a, a solid event. I was really impressed at the people that pitched to me. Um, got just really high quality submissions. Some of that might be the fact that it was not a large event. It was it was kind of a smaller event, so like the, they were they were capacity constrained by the by the venue, and so they basically were, um, you know, they could they could pick people that had experience. Or even if you were new to Ethereum, I have a feeling that the people they picked were, were you know, really high quality devs. But I have to say that like even the the new the new newcomers to Solidity and whatnot, I, you know, they all they all had pretty interesting submissions. So nice, yeah, that's uh, that's good to hear. It's so were these people uh, like building startups and they were pitching to you with their startup idea projects or i wonder where like the new development and excitement is the i would say the big things are DeFi and zero knowledge so we had you know a bunch of DeFi stuff um that was cool um sometimes just hooking stuff together but that's that's valid too um obviously zero knowledge is the future um, of this stuff. So there was some of that too. Um, and then there was, you know, things just making, you know, projects, making stuff easier. Uh, we had a couple of things that were basically trying to abstract away DAO voting through um, Twitter or through Telegram. Um, those, those were pretty cool. Um, I, I mean, I would encourage anybody to like go look at the Ethereum london dev post and check the submissions like it's it's always impressive to see what people build in you know two days yeah for so, yeah. sure i def i actually always, less than two days i always like to watch the uh submissions from eth denver like it seems like the quality of the submissions like some people actually start entire companies by the work that they start there um yeah totally was there anything like interesting out of Eth Denver? Because you were there as well, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I was at Eth Denver as well. Um, it's funny you actually got me to say Eth Denver instead of ETH Denver. That might be a first. Um, <laughs> the man pattern or imitation is a is a powerful force. Uh, you know, the the judging in Denver, like they were trying to do a DAO and then it like didn't work 
and because of that, it was all very ad hoc. Uh, I, it, it, you know, I think there were like a really, a lot of really good submissions in Denver. I just I didn't really get them. I got some. Don't get me wrong, but like, um, like I like I heard talked to other people that were you know really impressed by the submissions they got, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. Nothing like blew me away. Um, yeah, interesting. Of of the people of, of the people I saw, that is right. So yeah, but you know the bar is also like sort of moving higher, as I said. Like with every with every hackathon, like for sure, just the amount, the the, the maturity of the stack that the people can build on relatively quickly. Not to mention people who could just hack up a project using zero knowledge proofs are rare <laughs> interesting and it was one of those things that last year the uh, uh the eth berlin submission uh with barry whitehat and uh, a group of people basically started the entire zk roll-up movement um yeah it was basically just a submission from a hackathon of an idea that they like tried to implement um just kind of crazy that now there are multiple teams able to do it now there's frameworks to write zero knowledge proof based um, smart contracts identity and whatnot this seems like a good transition to talking about the roll-up stuff that shipped yeah 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 so i guess in the past couple weeks um where, you know it's i think it's been a little longer than that since we did an episode but in the last week uh the iden 3 shipped uh a on testnet a, a zero knowledge rollup uh that it, it's limited to eth transfers and and token transfers but that's really cool um and then the week before actually live on mainnet loopring shipped a, a zero knowledge rollup as well and uh you know it's it, 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 uh, th theirs is basically for their for their uh for their exchange um but um it's it's less of a of a general purpose a little more specific and actually although these things can do something like 2000 transactions per second what they still have a bunch of optimizations to do so they shipped it on mainnet and theirs does like over 100 transactions per second but it's it's not up into the into the thousands yet just because there's always things to work on and optimizing these the provers and the and the generators and the verifiers and um, and you know just the the software that that, that runs these things uh, as fast as possible. So I guess from a high level, it's probably worth recapping that a roll up is basically you put the you put the Merkle root on chain and then you basically any and then there's a bond on chain as well. So if the uh, if the transition gets executed and if anybody cheats, then you can like prove it by by submitting the. Well, no, sorry, that's an optimistic rollup. In a zk rollup, they just they just submit the 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 the, the validity proof and they prove that um, that what they've put on chain is the same as as what they're running in layer two or layer one point five on their roll-up chain. And zero knowledge proofs have um, the ability to submit shortened validity proofs that proofs that are able to like summarize those hundreds of transactions that happened during the block time into like um, a small transaction um, and it's able to condense them. And Loopring itself is a decentralized exchange I don't know what kind of volume it has. I've never personally used it. Um, it might be worth using just to see how well it works. Um, and just to try it as a zero knowledge proof based system should be interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool for sure. And they are, um, you know, you could argue about the, the, how, how you call it is, decentralized um but it is definitely trustless um so if they you know if 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 the centralized operator them of the chain ever goes down not even just like does something malicious but just goes down 
then you could always just get your money back in, in a relatively short period of time. It'll be interesting to see how they handle like mass exits and um, other similar problems that uh, Plasma had, for example, as a, as a big problem. Um, and it's also interesting to note what kind of data is required of the individual user of the system to save locally. Because this is another aspect that's interesting because if you don't have, like, no one, no individual user is going to keep track of the entire database for the decentralized exchange that they're using, but a lot of them might be required to keep track of their full transaction history to be able to uh, prove that, um, for example, like, they actually have tokens still on the exchange when they do need to withdraw. So it's going to be interesting seeing how they've implemented it. It's kind of amazing that there is already a mainnet implementation live in production when these things were theorized less than a year ago. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see how they've implemented it and how, the specific trade-offs that they've made. Um, let's also talk a bit about IDEN3. Um, IDEN3 is supposed to be a self-sovereign identity solution. Um, what does it have to do with zero-knowledge roll-up? That is a good question. Why are they doing a roll-up? I don't know exactly why they're doing a roll-up. I mean, I they except for the fact that they use snarks in their identity, and you know, using snarks in a roll-up is is kind of a natural uh, a natural extension. Um, I suppose it's possible that they just want to make sure they have the scalability for their identities. Um, my guess is they want to be able to roll it out to all of the Catalans. So they, in order to, you know, make it work, they have to have a certain scalability as well. Yeah, Catalonia is a region of Spain that has a ongoing independence movement um, that was rather violently oppressed by uh, the central Spanish government with the support of the European Union as a little bit of background. And uh, the interesting thing about IDEN3 is that um, there was a push to hold a referendum um, that was viewed hostily uh, and as illegal by the central state. So they actually had to hold a um, statewide referendum of Catalonia to vote whether or not they want to be independent. And um, it's interesting that IDEN3 came out of this. Um, it's also really going to be really interesting to see like what kind of role they plan on playing but um, it's actually fascinating that there is such a social motivation behind this project besides the other added benefits of uh, being able to implement self-sovereign identity on ethereum and um, having like a privacy preserving platform uh, or layer two solution as well Yeah. So generally, zero-knowledge rollups could either be used for uh, scaling or privacy um, or both. I haven't really seen people who've implemented both, but within these uh, last two or three weeks, um, the Aztec protocol has also rolled out on mainnet um, a system which allows users to transact with the amount of the transactions obfuscated through their zero-knowledge uh, proof system as well. So they are planning on creating um, payment privacy, which would allow one address to anonymously submit um, a unspecified amount to another address on mainnet Ethereum, they still haven't implemented the anonymity of the uh, addresses <clears throat> that are transacting, but they did 
um, develop a system that currently hides the amount, and they have a plan to uh, also hide the addresses involved. And uh, according to their roadmap, they also plan on obfuscating the code of smart contracts through the system that they've set up as well, which is going to be extremely interesting. I don't know if they would be categorized as a zero-knowledge roll-up, um, especially since their work started before the roll-up and layer two systems were really being introduced, but it's another project that's also very interesting and we'll be following closely. Is there... Yeah, the yeah. so the reason, I mean, the reason it doesn't get used for privacy and scalability in the same is that the circuit size explodes. Um, so using it for scalability is usually makes the circuit size go up from just privacy and then trying to do both, you know, makes it, makes it quite large. Um, it's, you know, yeah, Aztec is not, not a roll up. Um, it's, it's on chain. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's super cool. They've hired some great people as well, like Ariel Gabazon. Um, and I should say consensus is one of their investors. So I do have that, that conflict, but Hey, you're the one that brought it up. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was something else I was going to react to in there, but I forget what it was. Uh, oh, the wow. roadmap to eventually getting to privacy preserving smart contracts so that you have code obfuscation. Yeah. Um, that's cool. I, you know, I don't know how far away that is. Um, it, you know, all this stuff is moving super fast though. In Paris, I was talking to Justin Drake and, you know, he mentioned a few breakthroughs um, just recently, which I will not try to summarize. <laughs> um, I know that he just, he and Vitalik just went on the Zero Knowledge podcast. So that might be a good place to check out if you're interested. I actually just started the episode and haven't had a chance to listen to it. So I don't entirely know if you talked about the breakthroughs in there. Nice. But I think one of the breakthroughs Vitalik talked about, like published in a uh, in an E three search post uh, this this the today, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, the the zero knowledge space is definitely still nascent, like even more than than blockchains, even though it's been around for for three decades, it just had never been a thing, um, like that that really was like practical and got put into use, um, and now it is and. It'll be interesting to see, even like if some of these techniques get applied to traditional tech outside of blockchain, because it could. It's just never really has has been done, you know. Yeah, definitely. Just kind of like formal verification, in which there were only limited subsets and industries like aerospace that would even attempt to do it, but there was never really the same kind of financial incentive um, to take it as far as uh, the blockchain space needs to. Yeah, totally. So um, let's talk about the... You know what else? We, it, while we're on that, yeah. Semaphore came out this, this week, which is pretty right. cool. If you're a developer, it's definitely worth looking into. It's like sort of a, a privacy layer. So it sort of like abstracts away some of the stuff of dealing with snarks um, in order to like, so basically you can you can use Semaphore as a way of like, um, I think one of the examples they give is private voting. Um, it's been audited, it's open source, it's out there. You should, you should check it out, um, give them feedback. I don't know if all of the sort of assumptions are like super practical in, in some of the things that um, of semaphore, but like, I think that like, definitely like it, it it's happening. Um, and I mean that in terms of like wide, widespread mainstream adoption, you know, right now. Um, but how yeah, does it like compare it, to um, Zocrates? Yeah. Zacrates is more of a library to do zero knowledge proofs directly. This is more of like abstracting away some of the zero, zero knowledge proofs so that you can just build using using principles. If that makes sense, uh -huh. like um, Socrates, you definitely definitely in the weeds. 
with some of the ideas that you're not don't have to be as in the weeds. That sounds promising. <laughs> yeah, Socrates was um, still kind of fairly difficult to use. <laughs> yeah, and... I, I think there's a learning curve with Socrates. Actually, I had a I got a tutorial on it from from Karen Scarborough. We we had a Houston Ethereum uh, meetup on this, and mm -hmm. uh, she had gone to uh, like a ZK hackathon and learned how to use it. And like, um, to be fair, like I didn't keep up using it but like i could follow the demo and i didn't actually think it was so bad okay um, i mean took some work and you know whatnot but like it wasn't it wasn't crazy i mean i yeah like i could run it myself and have it work and you know of course making that into an app is like a you know a whole another layer of difficult and that's basically what semaphore is trying to solve mm. that's definitely interesting So is there any other scaling-related discussions? Um, scaling in particular. You know, it's it's uh, interesting to see how it it's all about roll-ups these days, and like whether ZK roll-up, you know, to do ETH or token transfers, um, but basically to do payments, um, or optimistic roll-up, which is the idea of being able to have basically full EVM. Um, you know, there was a post like I think a week ago from LeapDAO that basically was said, you know, we're quitting Plasma. Rollups is the future. So, um, yeah, rollups is the new hotness. <laughs> like <laughs> I feel like it is. There's no doubt at this point. I wonder if there are some companies that are just too far along with um with plasma for example like matic um that are just going to double down because they already have something and if most of uh the people who are approaching if not already in production used a variant of plasma cash so they're limited in their functionality to the equivalent of like token swaps um but yeah, it's it's interesting that some uh, organizations probably are just very close to production and they're just going to stick with it. Yeah, I think for some use cases, like an exchange, it, maybe Plasma makes sense and it's not not you know not crazy. And um, I don't know. We need to see it in the wild too. So that's that's fair. Um, mm. But yeah, like solving the mass exit problem of Plasma. I mean, that's like why why Rollup became a thing, right? It's because yeah it wasn't wasn't easy to do it's hard to imagine users really keeping track of their utxos and monitoring the chain right so yeah that's kind of unrealistic yeah anyway so so prog pal I, sorry <laughs> so prog pal that's what i was that's gonna bring up but the way i was gonna put <laughs> it is can we finally stop talking about prog pal because no one cares <laughs> it's funny that i read your mind then yeah um yeah no i mean uh, who knows man i you know some people think it's dead some people think it's don't i i uh i think there were some people that were surprised by how vociferous the pushback was from the community and um i mean frankly outside of miners I don't really know anybody that's like strongly in favor of Progpal. I mean, Why there's like some exceptions. Don't get me wrong. I thought miners would be against it. Isn't the entire idea to have a proof of work algorithm that's generated uh, like randomly in such a way as to um, make ASICs machines obsolete? using yeah like an ever-changing algorithm so that no one would bother creating an asics machine similar to yeah. the way um what's it called um monero essentially had a very contentious fork that caused them to lose between 40 and 60 percent of their hash rate because they decided to implement something that basically made all uh asics miners of monero obsolete 
Well, I mean, that's why, right? Is because it's an anti-ASIC measure. And so right. the GPU miners want it. Yeah. And nobody yeah. really knows how much how much of the network mine, hash power is ASICs. You know, lately the GPU miners have been saying that it's 40%. Previously, most estimates were more like 10 or 20%. Who that really knows? That's the problem. a substantial drop in hash power, though. And I yeah, don't think... There, there's also... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, there's also the issue that... Um, ETH has basically, before every like epoch, mining epoch, uh, generates a DAG um, that you need in order to mine, and it keeps growing in size. And, you know, it started at zero or close to it. And now, after, you know, five years of the network running, it is at, it's about to hit four gigs. And, um, there's a lot of four gig GPUs and some ASICs like E3 that might just drop off the network. So that's going to be kind of interesting to see. Um, but that only drops off the like the E3 of the of the like the the ASICs. Um, the thing is, like nobody really knows what what are all the like private ASICs out there, you know? Right. Yeah, it's true. And. Um... I don't think Monero set a very good example of what happens when you do programmatically change the hashing algorithm to disincentivize miners. In my opinion, it actually empowered a fork of the chain. Um, and it seemed like the Ethereum community didn't really want to get to a contentious hard fork um, over this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think Monero was fine with the fork. You know, I don't know. Did the fork actually? I feel like that fork actually led to like when they got rid of it, it led to there being like not two versions, but like four versions of Monero. Yeah, Am I crazy. There, there, I, I vaguely there recall are multiple. This. And yeah. like that's just. And of an... course, Monero is a fork of a, of of something else. Like way back when. Right, but the original one didn't now. really have a lot of attraction because it was pre-mined. And uh, Monero okay, gotcha. was essentially like the clean slate. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that's a very good example. Um, also, I don't really care. It's it's worth noting though that uh, pr there was a ProgPow exploit um, that was put out that basically like the way it was implemented or proposed to be implemented, there was a workaround that made it substantially easier to mine blocks. <clears throat> and it was basically like exactly what it was supposed to resolve that's that's one of the difficulties right if you introduce uh, a complicated new set of code that hasn't been like thoroughly tested in a large-scale network and you have the entire security of like a multi-billion dollar network running on it and depending on it without even like real interest from most of the core developers like focused on it it seems more risky than it would possibly be worth in the short to medium term um and i personally would just be happy like having a lot of resources allocated towards um shipping version zero of ethereum 2.0 and then um transitioning the consensus mechanism over to the uh the beacon chain and essentially achieving finality for ethereum one using uh, proof of stake and i think the sooner we get to that the better um so that's why i've never really been interested in uh in proof of work in general but I haven't looked at the details of ProgPow, and I don't think I've really found a lot of people that have. Um... I do think there is an issue of a lot of the people in Ethereum are not hardware people. And I I, I said this to them multiple times, like, like, you know, you say you're for it, but like, I don't really think you're qualified to evaluate it, <laughs> which some people didn't appreciate because I, I know I'm not qualified to evaluate it, but like, if you're not a hardware person, 
like how do you like uh, i mean hardware is is hard and substantially different from writing software i mean like if you're not like really in it it's tough for me to imagine that you really you know are like super qualified to evaluate how risky progpow is um <laughs> and actually there were some people that like you know were quite rude to me um people pro progpow people telling me that and not just to me but saying like oh this you know this is the most tested blah 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 in the history of ethereum like you're just stupid because you you know you don't agree with progpow um or because you're saying that it's risky you're throwing the risky fud down and i was like well looks risky to me and like i mean i don't know this like yeah uh, you know, it was a talking point like six months ago of like, this is the most tested thing in Ethereum's history. And now we found a pretty big exploit that could have been quite disastrous. So, yeah, it would have undermined the entire is, security of the platform. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As somebody that's been like both pro progpal, anti progpal, it's like, I feel like all sides dislike me now. So, right. Uh, and it's like funny. I generally like try not to talk about it, but. Uh, and it's funny because a lot of the conversations actually start up like this, where it's like, like oh, we start talking about it as a joke, and then we actually start talking about it. But right, uh, right. <laughs> I agree. The priority should be turning off proof of work. Uh, to be fair, I think this is pretty orthogonal to all of the ETH two effort. Um, but you know, even so, um, like I would prefer to, you know, turn off. ETH one's proof of work as fast as possible. Frankly, like I think it's like somewhat of a of a thing that people are talking about right now, and I'm considering sort of rallying the community is like uh, whether stateless ETH one should be a barrier to uh, turning off, like turning off ETH or turning off proof of work because if we uh, if we require ETH two validators to hold ETH one state then we could turn it off relatively soon, right? Right. Um, but most people don't want to do that because reasons. And my point is like, yeah, but turning off proof of work would be amazing. Um, slashing issuance would be great. And not wasting all this insane amount of electricity. And I think it would be quite revolutionary in and of itself. And then... If we get to the point where stateless Ethereum is a thing, then we could also not require validators to hold state anymore. Um, but I think that's going to be quite controversial. I know some people are very against it. So um, I think one thing to say is like, I think it's worth having our voice be heard that like we really believe in turning off proof of work. Like to me, that should be a priority. Right. And I don't think either side really argues against. Um turning off proof of work in progpow i kind of do see that weird um dilemma of whether or not validators should actually be obliged to hold eth1 state um yeah it's it's a lot of data to hold in ssd um in ssds and it's a lot of read write operations um it's quite taxing on hardware and almost none of it really has anything to do with validating. Um, the But I wonder if the cost-benefit trade-off, like if it's economically viable to have uh, a one terabyte SSD on your uh, validator node and you would recover it from um, the rewards that you would get over a certain period of time, then, uh, I mean, that kind of just answers itself, right? If the economic incentives are appropriately aligned and people assume that there's going to be enough uh, financial reward to maintain ETH1 state, then people will do it, <laughs> assuming well, people are economically uh, Hot state is only like 40 gigs. Sorry, so which the state of ethereum yeah. currently yeah yeah hot hot state is only like 40 gigs so it's not like crazy to think that you know i i think this is possible and i'm not 100 percent sure but like i think 
just like you only need to run one beacon node to run a bunch of different validators, um, it seems to me like you should only need to have one copy of, of hot state on the machine. So um, you could potentially run a bunch of different validators, like in one validator is 32 ETH. Uh, off, off of the same of, hardware? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's not even like to me an insane an insane hardware ask, right? It's just not what has been planned and you're not no longer you're going to be staking on a raspberry pi <laughs> right i mean i probably wasn't going to stake on a raspberry pi anyways just because of the reliability of the machine itself um but it it actually does bring a pretty good question to mind like what is um reasonable parameters for hardware for these uh for these devices running an ethereum full node is pretty taxing like you need at least eight gigs of ram preferably 16 um you need probably about a, a terabyte of uh, solid state hard drive with very fast read writes because that's essentially the bottleneck um and yeah it, it's it's fairly taxing um it there's no way you would spend less than like 300 to 500 dollars running an ethereum full node currently and you do that altruistically and tens of thousands of people do that altruistically um having similar assumptions about validator nodes if the proof of stake reward would amortize the costs associated with having like buying the physical hardware because no one really wants this all to run on aws we have eos for that um essentially <laughs> if we could amortize the costs over about three years then um that is like it just makes economic sense right if your staking reward equals the expected cost of the hardware today conservatively then um and you recover those costs over a three-year period then it just makes sense and that i've never really seen the debate discussed that way i i always see the debate as like it would be nice if we have stateless ethereum before we do this right like it would be nice if we resolve all of these research questions before we finish like the implementation of this one thing um but it would be nicer if we have eth2 in the next two years <laughs> um so I yeah think, yeah at a certain point i think we need to have like an upper bound and anything that like in terms of engineering that falls below that upper bound should be a realistic uh, option I, I think I said this. So I do these annotated editions of Weekend Ethereum News. So Weekend Ethereum News is at weekendetheriumnews.com. And then I do these annotated editions like the day after, which I put on my own site at evanvanness.com. Um, I, you know, there's been these people saying like, oh, we're not going to have ETH2 for four years. And like, that's clearly false, depending on how you define the question what what i do think is true is that like phase two of of eth2 doesn't seem super close to me um and like you know two or three years seems seems potentially true um what 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 i think is that it doesn't matter if we get phase one up and running and we turn off proof of work which right. is why like if we get those two things happening then it doesn't really matter because we can, like phase one will have the shards running so it we won't have we won't have quote unquote transactions running on the shards but we will have like blob publication so data availability which means that we can use phase all the shards in phase one for rollups um so you know when we get these rollups optimized and we're doing three thousands of transactions per second on them um and then we have 64 shards so 3,000 times 64, and we're like 100,000 transactions per second. We've basically solved like the scalability problem for you know for five years. And if we if we do that and we turn off proof of work, like 
I, I think we've bought ourselves so much time on that front that like whether you can, you know, um, whether we have all these fancy execution environments and, and EWASM that do atomic cross shard calls, you know, that's, that's, that's not going to happen in the next year, <laughs> but if we get the other stuff right, which doesn't really seem like there's any blockers, then it doesn't really matter. That can happen in the next, you know, two or three years. No big Agreed. Deal. There's also the threat that Ethereum one with these sidechain scaling uh, utilities becomes the biggest competitor to ETH two. Yeah, I'm not so worried about that, but yeah, who knows? I mean. Yeah, I'm not necessarily worried, um, and personally, I would rather uh, Ethereum one kind of progress, have a different consensus mechanism, better finality gadget, um, faster throughput plus layer two solutions. Honestly, that's all I need. <laughs> you know, like I I don't really require much beyond that. Um, and there's very difficult it's very difficult to imagine any use case that requires anything beyond the current capability of layer two scaling solutions um but i mean that should essentially take off the time pressure of other research activities so that we could implement other nice-to-haves currently unproven technology um while not pushing the uh, delivery timeline back any further yeah so i agree 100 yeah. percent with you there all right let's ship eth zero <laughs> <laughs> well right. on that note <laughs> yeah let's uh, get back to work <laughs> did we uh, we sort of we're, we're close to our our goal of 45 minutes that's that's a success it's the first time we've been close. <laughs> yeah, there we go. For the win. Okay. Well, good talking to you again. I'll talk to you again next week. See you next week. Later. <laughs>